And Lord Jesus, it is our joy to sing to you, knowing that you're not a concept or a hope, you're an actual person who came to live among us for the sake of love, for the sake of our salvation. Help us to hear you now and do what you ask for your glory and our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now our hearts turn toward the Christmas season and the celebration of the Lord's birth. Look with me. Before we go to today's passage, open your Gospels with me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I want to show you the Christmas story from the point of view of heaven. The birth of Jesus is found in three of the four Gospels. Matthew and Luke give you the earthly view, John alone. The disciple nearest to Jesus tells you what is happening in eternity past, gives you the view from heaven as the Son of God, who is the light of the world, comes into the world that He made and the world that He had rejected Him. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. If you need one at home, please take that Bible with you. You're always welcome to take as many as you can use or or pass out to others who may need it. I'm in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Everyone have it? Here's what John the Apostle said. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Here's a great tragedy. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And here's a great offer. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, You are... God, you were in the beginning with the Father. You came into the dark world and collectively, Lord, you were rejected. But you offer to save and give your light to anyone today, even now, who believes. Give us the grace to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. John is a commercial fisherman. He's not a religious man. He's been called literally away from his nets and his boat and his family. And if you could have met him, you would have thought he was exactly what he 
always was, an ordinary man who met an extraordinary Savior. And this commercial fisherman, in his language, in simple Greek, so simple that it's, the, it's John that they teach you primarily when you're learning Greek in seminary. He just gives you in simple terms what was happening from the cosmic point of view, from heaven's point of view, when the Word of God came into the world that he, was, that he had made and that rejected him. John, in his simple, direct language, loves to use different pairs of things. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about life and death. And here he's telling you that Jesus, from the very beginning, from the time he first lived among people, experienced rejection. He continually offered to anyone who would listen and believe him entry into the family of God. But everywhere Jesus goes, from that day to now, he causes a reaction. And John says what we have is a conflict between light and darkness. Spiritually and physically, darkness is something that we all have to contend with every day. Don't you love this time of year when it gets dark? Around noon, it seems. <laughs> Shortly after lunch, it starts getting dark and you just feel completely worn out by 3.30 in the afternoon. I have a stocking stuffer recommendation for you along those lines. In the epitome of American ingenuity on their side, met with American laziness on mine, I discovered this beautiful thing that is one of my prized possessions. It's a tiny little clock that projects the time onto the ceiling because it's such a hassle to roll over in bed and look at the clock, right? <laughs> if the numbers are this big and directly overhead, you can see what time it is. Well, it, that's the, because I have a projector clock is the only reason I realized I'd done something pretty, pretty remarkable because of time change a few weeks ago. I was sitting in the living room with a TV on and also a pile of books. Couldn't decide whether I wanted to read or watch TV. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, alternating in my ADD-addled kind of way between watching TV and reading books, and I eventually realized I'm the only one who's still awake in the house. My wife's gone to bed, my son's gone upstairs, presumably he's gone to bed. And I look around and I thought, oh man, it's, it's, it's around midnight, I'm a grown man with grown-up responsibilities, I should get a decent amount of sleep. So I go to bed. And the only reason I knew what time it actually was was because of the projector clock, which said when I tucked in and just happened to glance up, I was going to bed at 9.03 p.m. <laughs> and they'd been asleep for about an hour, apparently. How's that effect on you? That's the way darkness works. That's, the way, that's why we, don't, we struggle with time change. In a much more important way, it seems to me, and you've probably noticed the same if you've kept up with the news, it seems that the culture is getting darker too. Have you noticed? It's just oppressive to watch the news. It's a burden to be well-informed these days. These last few weeks in particular, I'm not sure if it's getting darker or actually the light is starting to shine into corners where it's never been. We're finding out in just about every sphere, political, entertainment, business leadership, journalism, just about in every arena, we're finding out that people were certainly likable, definitely talented, and many of them we thought trustworthy, some of them in incredibly important institutions, 
were not nearly as trustworthy, not nearly as filled with delight as we thought and needed them to be. Jesus says the world has always been that way. God made mankind to walk with Him, but we collectively as a human race and individually every day, we choose our own way and the result is darkness. And the result particularly is this reaction that Jesus creates in every person who ever listens to Him. Look with me in Luke chapter 8. We'll say goodbye to Luke for the rest of this year. We'll return at some point next year. Luke chapter 8. Jesus has been explaining, and that's where we were last week, Jesus explained to people the reaction He was causing all around Him. He uses a famous parable, the parable of the soils, some people call it, or the parable of the sower, the parable of the planter. And Jesus says that He is like a man going out to plant seed in a field. And everywhere he goes, he throws good seed out, hoping that it meets with good earth. But in almost every case except one, the seed gets a poor reception. It's snatched away by birds. It's trampled underfoot. It lands in shallow soil and dies out. It's choked by weeds and never bears fruit. Only in one instance, Jesus says... Luke chapter 8, verse 8, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. In all the people that Jesus spoke to, there's only one group that is getting the benefit. Only one group where the seed is falling into good soil and creating a harvest. And it says it yielded a hundredfold. That's the miracle of farming that what looks like dead earth meets with good seed and a harvest comes up that can feed a country. Jesus says, that's what my word is like. And then he says, Luke 8, verse 8, as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Very first century, very Jewish, very Jesus, frankly, but very purposeful. In our language, he might have said, pay attention, catch this if you can. What I'm telling you is very important. The disciples have no idea what he means, so he goes on to explain the parable to them. And then in verse 16, he seemingly changes the subject, but he's really not. He's going to change the word picture. He's been talking about farming and this reaction that his word is having on people. Now he's going to use a different word picture to make the same kind of point. I'm in Luke 8, verse 16 now. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, what's this about? Jesus is going to start talking about light. And what he's doing is he's giving lessons to people who are meant to be light. He's explaining the same thing he has been all along. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And if you're reading this in your living room and the parable of the soils is really well explained, he takes the disciples aside and tells them what he's talking about. Now it looks like he's changing the subject. If you're ever doing reading like this, Remember my first and most important Bible reading tip. If you've been here for a while, 
thing I keep saying is, when you're reading the Bible, what's the best thing you can do? Slow down. Ask yourself, what's he talking about? Is he changing the subject or is he talking about the same thing? Another thing you can do is look and see if Jesus has mentioned this elsewhere. He's been talking about the seed that falls onto good soil. This is like the lives of the disciples. And their life now is actually starting to bear fruit. Eventually, Jesus is going to be killed on the cross for our sins, as promised. And his disciples, who apparently in the beginning were skeptical and doubtful, they were all fearful, particularly Peter, they're going to go and live a life for Christ that literally changed the course of the world. They're going to bear fruit, and they're going to spread the message of Jesus everywhere. Now, I'm convinced because of what Jesus said right here and elsewhere, he's telling them something even perhaps more pointed, more easily understood about who they are if they're with him. Look in Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you another time that Jesus spoke about this very same thing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Hang on to Luke because we'll be right back, but look in Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Everybody have it? And said, you are the light of the world. Wait a second, what? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Same thing he said in Luke. In the same way, here's what he means. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To your Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus said that to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Elsewhere, you may remember, we've just been reading about this, Jesus is the light of the world. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus make a mistake? Did he contradict himself? Well, which is it? Is, is it that Jesus is the light of the world or you are the light of the world? It's both. He is the light of the world, the unique Son of God, John says, who made everything that exists, who came into the dark world that had grown dark because of sin, and because of that same sin, the world did not know Him, and in fact, the world rejected Him. But even now, right here in this church in Huntington Beach, on this day in 2017, He puts an offer in front of you who are considering Jesus. If you will believe him, he will give you the right to become a son or a daughter of God and be saved. And once you're in the family of God, Jesus turns to you, little old you, little old me, ordinary us, the likes of us, and says, because you're with me, now I've done something incredible. You're the light of the world. And in Luke, he says, the point of light has never been to hide it. It wouldn't make any sense to set a light ablaze and then hide it so that it could do no good. What we do with lights is put them up in high places so that they can illumine everyone in the house. A first century Jewish house in the dark would not have needed much of a light. They tended to be one room affairs, so one lamp put in a good 
strategically, in a good strategic location up high, could have given light to the entire family in that little house. Jesus says, yes, the world is growing darker. Yes, as I give people the Word of God, most people will have a negative reaction. Some won't listen at all. Some will listen in a shallow kind of way and have it choked out. Some will grow more concerned with other things and have the life that is beginning to take root choked out by their own self-interest. Only a few of you will grow into a harvest, but the seed is going out. The light is shining, and if you walk in that light, you are the light. The point of Luke in this passage, what Jesus is telling us is this, Christian, You were saved to shine, not for yourself, but for Him, to reflect the light that He put in your life, your plan A. And that's a humbling thing. In fact, a lot of you won't believe it. One of the most stirring testimonies I heard from our men's retreat this year is that someone told us, grown man said that he, through the teaching and the experience of the men's retreat this year, came to believe for the first time in his life that God actually loved him. And a lot of you may be here with the same struggle. You know you, and you know what you're capable of, and you know what you've done, and you know your thoughts, and you look at that darkness and you think to yourself, quite honestly, there is no way if God knows everything about me that He could love me. Yes, He does. That's the good news I'm telling you. Here's how Paul explained it. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, do you know the rest of it? Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, He died. While we were still in darkness, He started shining. And if you've come to the light, if the light of the gospel has been shining in your life, now Jesus affects a tremendous transformation. He takes people who once were darkness and says, I've remade you. You've gone from fruitless to a great harvest. And in this word picture, you've gone from the dark to become the light of the world. And it's overwhelming but it it doesn't need to be your plan A. By the way, do you know what God's plan B is to reach the world? He doesn't have one. God doesn't work on plan A, plan B, plan C. We do because we mess up. Our family's been on a little run of losing keys lately. Both father and children have been losing keys. So we've made all kinds of contingency plans for what we're going to do when we next lose the keys. Where's the spare going to be? Who's going to to bring it to us? I've almost got a locksmith on speed dial at this point. uh, He pulls up with a smile. We've used him twice in six months, okay? That's because we're ignorant folk. We're fallible, we're frail, we forget, we get distracted. God is not fallible, He's not frail, He's not distracted. He knows exactly what He's going to do, and you were saved to shine. You're the answer to the darkness, and there is no plan B. My friend Brian, who was just baptized, we only met on on Thursday night. Talked for the first time, I think on Monday, met on Thursday and you just watched him get baptized. Let me tell you why that happened. It happened for a reason that Jesus 
is explaining right here. On Veterans Day, we had a memorial service for a guy who used to sit right there in your seat, Michelle. Mike Larison will never sit there again because he's with the Lord now. He wasn't long with our church, but when Mike was here, he would only talk about two things. He would talk about Jesus, and he would talk about his wife who had died a few years earlier. Those were the two things we knew for sure Mike loved. As it turns out, he was quite an extraordinary American. The family waited a long time to have the memorial on Veterans Day, and since I didn't officiate it, I didn't really understand why. One of my sons is preparing for military service, and Mike had very kindly taken an interest and was always asking me about that. He had said that he had been in the Army himself. And when I asked him, what what'd you do? He said that he had something to do with the nuclear program. Well, I thought he was an engineer of some kind. At his memorial service, we found out from a dear friend who gave the eulogy that what Mike actually did was something so extraordinary that I actually looked it up to make sure I was hearing it correctly. Mike was an airborne soldier, and when he jumped out of an airplane, he actually had a small nuclear weapon strapped to his back. He would jump into places as a human nuclear deterrent at strategic places. And then his friend said, here's how it worked. If things really got bad and it was time to use a small nuclear device, Mike was to set the timer and he had 20 minutes to get away. (laughs) Well, I talked to another friend who's still active and knows a little bit about this, and he said, you know, if those are the conditions, he might as well sit beside it and have a sandwich so he doesn't die hungry and tired. Because 20 minutes is not going to be enough to get away from what's about to happen. Why am I telling you that? Because obviously this is, he's a heartbroken man for one, was always talking about his wife, Crystal. He must have been some kind of hard man, too, to have that kind of special operations job. But he knew Jesus, and he talked about Jesus. And Brian, who you just saw get baptized, came to faith in Jesus because a whole bunch of things came together for Brian. And I don't even know how many years we just met. We just became friends. But years of witness in the lives of these two people, one already with the Lord, the other heart sick and physically ill, all of those things, their light shone, started shining in the light of Brian. So on Thursday night when he trusted Jesus as Savior, I explained to him, well, the next thing you need to do is get baptized. When would you like to do that? And he said, well, what about Sunday? Nobody does that. That's exactly what happens in the New Testament. Americans, 2,000 years later, say, well, let me think, and I want to go to a class, and I want to attend here for about nine years, and then maybe I'll get baptized. (laughs) No, Brian saw it in Scripture, and you just saw it. Just got baptized. Why is that? Because ordinary people are plan A. We have an amazing capacity to shine if, and only if, We won't hide the light that Jesus has given us. And that's so needful right now because it's so dark. These things in the media are so disturbing. And it's not even a political thing. It's on both sides of the aisle in every arena of life. It's so dark, so disappointing. 
that your temptation is to say the darkness is too much. There's nothing I can do to shrug your shoulder, hang on, hang on to Jesus and just wait, run out the clock. Jesus says, don't do that. Nobody, nobody lights a lamp to hide it. It's got to be up where it can be seen so that it can give light to everyone in the house. See, the danger is that you'll be overwhelmed by the problems of the whole world and forget to shine in your little world. In fact, let's take a minute. If you have your sermon sheet, I'd like you to flip it over to the blank side and just write down your worlds, the places in your life, your friendships, your job, your hobbies, your circle of family and friends, the worlds where Jesus has placed you where you believe you should be shining. We'll take literally one minute to do this, and please don't forget to start at home. Where are the worlds where you should be shining? Okay, look back to Luke 8, 17. Jesus says, here's the effect that light has. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That's what light does. It reveals reality. It shows you what's really happening. He says in verse 18, take care then how you hear. Because the light shines and because it eventually will dispel all the darkness, take care how you hear. And then he says something cryptic, but very important. I'll explain it to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, first he says, essentially, you're the light of the world, and I didn't save you so that you would hide the light you've been given. I saved you to shine. You're the answer to the darkness, but that's not all. Now that you have the light, what Jesus is warning us of in these two verses, in 17 and 18, is that you're accountable for the light that you've been given. That the light begins to shine in the world, and it pushes back the dark places, and it reveals the secrets. That's part of the pain that we're currently experiencing in the world. People who are leading secret lives have had them painfully and very publicly exposed. Jesus says that's the nature of the light. That's the nature of truth. The light will not be overcome. Someday all the truth will be known. So, he says, take care then how you hear. If you're listening to this, if you understand, Jesus says, what I'm telling you, pay very careful attention to the way you listen and to the way you respond because those of you who have will receive even more. And some of you who think you get it 
the one from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. What's this about? Well, have you ever heard the phrase, the rich get richer? It's true, isn't it? There's a certain point in the world where you reach a certain amount of wealth and the money starts making money. I guess the real trick is just to be rich in the first place, right? If you ever get rich, then you can get even richer. Well, Jesus is not talking about money. He's talking about a personal relationship. He's saying, I'm speaking to you. Now, pay careful attention to the way you listen and the way you respond. Because some of you, Jesus says, are going to understand this, and you're going to receive more and more and more from me. People who receive the truth, who obey the truth, who trust Jesus because it's a personal relationship, because he's not a force like electricity to be manipulated because he's not a formula and he's certainly not a concept or an idea for people to blindly sink their hopes in. No, he's a real person. He is the Son of God who made the world and came and returned to it to save it. He is a real, actual person, and he's speaking. And for those who listen, they get more from him. The relationship gets better. It gets richer. You understand more. You walk with him who is the light, and your light gets brighter and brighter, and your influence grows, and you go deeper, and you go farther with Jesus. Then he says there's another group, and they just think they get it. They don't really believe me. They don't really pay attention to me. Many of them, according to the parable of the soils, don't think they have to. They listen to me, and they say it's It's nonsense. There are other things that are more important. I believe him, but not really, only so far. Jesus says to those kinds of people who think they have it, even the little they have because they don't truly believe me, they don't truly listen, even what little they begin with will be taken away. That's the way personal relationships work. You can't go on ignoring a person day after day after day and have a better and better relationship with them. It's both a promise and a warning. It's a beautiful invitation. It's Jesus saying to us right now, this church, Crosspoint, these disciples, and if you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus, if you're considering Him, and you must be because you're here, if you're not considering Jesus, this is a really odd choice for your Sunday morning because he's, he's the point, He's the message. If you're considering Him, understand He is pleading with you as a person and as God Himself to trust Him, to believe Him, to give Him your life. And if you do, it gets better and better and better. You open His Word and He actually speaks to you. And some days it's amazing and some days you feel like He's not really listening and you can't really pay attention, but you pray and on some occasions at least you have the certainty that you've been heard in love. And if you keep walking with Him, it does get better and better and your influence and your light shines brighter and brighter and brighter and more people in your little world come closer to Him. But here's the practical part. The single greatest question I'm asked, most frequent question, rather, I'm asked by Christians is this. How can I know the will of God? You ever asked? I have. I've asked. I've asked God. I've asked people. How can I be sure what the will of God is? It's a really important question, but let me tell you another one that's even more important. 
And it's more important because it has to come first. And that is this. Since God has spoken and put His Word in writing and spoken authoritatively through His Son, Jesus Christ, here's the big question and the first one. Are you obeying what God already told you? See, God's a, at the sense of, at the risk of being really obvious, God is very wise, supremely, perfectly, absolutely intelligent. We as parents, if our kids aren't obeying the basic things, we don't just keep piling on the instructions. We go back to the first thing. Talk to them about the basics and the most important things. Many Christians are seeking the will of God for the future when they haven't obeyed God in the present. If you want to know what the will of God is for your future, look at the present and look back toward the past and ask yourself, have I already obeyed Jesus? Does my life on a day-to-day basis, not perfectly, but as I take a snapshot of the last six months, does my life show that I am continually striving to obey Jesus, to believe Him, to trust Him, to do what He says? Those people, Jesus says, will receive more and more and more. And what He says in this passage is, cross point, you are the light of the world. You are God's actual plan. And if the eight or nine hundred people or so that call this church home, none of us come every single Sunday all at the same time, we wouldn't fit. There's probably about 900 people in this area, 900 to 1,000 people who would say that this is their church home. Imagine what it would look like if those people who know that Jesus has saved them and now understand that they are plan A and no plan B is coming, if we all started shining in our individual worlds, what sort of effect would that have in our community? What a difference would that make to your friends and to your family if in your worlds you started obeying? And then the story takes a really awkward turn. Look in verse 19. Jesus has one more thing to teach us, and because He's masterful, He uses an interruption to do it. Verse 19. Then His mother and His brothers came to Him, but they could not reach Him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And that's a little awkward. Because Jesus is on a roll. He's teaching. He's giving eternal life and death kind of warnings. He's making an invitation to those who were following him, come close, and you and I are going to get closer and closer. Take what I've already told you, put it into practice, and I'll tell you more and better things. Your influence will grow as you obey me. And then some guy says, hey, your your mom and your brothers are here. Awkward, don't you think? you imagine? I mean, this is a much, obviously, a much smaller, more modest setting. Can you imagine somebody walking onto the platform in the middle of this and saying, hey, Bruce, your mom's on the phone? (laughs) Well, gosh, man, I'm almost done. Give me ten more minutes. It just wouldn't be done, but this man did. And it happened in the first century because family was so important. Their families were much more tight-knit. I think it's actually impossible for Americans like us in the 21st century to understand how tight-knit families in this world were. We move around, right? People get a promotion, kids go off to college, 
Even in Europe, they marvel that our kids turn 18 and so many of us send our kids halfway across the country with no real expectation that they might come back. I mean, that's it, you know. Thanks for 18 years. Maybe you'll meet somebody. Hopefully, you'll get a job. And, you know, maybe we'll see you. Maybe we won't. Maybe at Christmas. We hope so. I think about our culture. We have a song like, I'll be home for Christmas. Well, that's nice. In the ancient world, it's I'll be home always. You got married in the ancient world, they built another room on the end of the house. It's very normal for them to say something important. Your mother and your brothers are outside, and Luke doesn't tell us, but Mark does. The reason his family has come is because they think Jesus has gone crazy. Mark says they've come to take custody of him. And you can understand their point of view. He's saying extraordinary things. He is literally claiming to be God. He's also acting to prove it, but they can't fathom that the boy they knew is actually the Messiah, so they think he's gone crazy. That's why he gets this interruption. And Jesus' answer is absolutely astonishing, but he answered them. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and what? And do it. Wow. Does that seem rude to you? Does it seem like he just disowned his family? He didn't. He loved his family. In at least one case, someone who didn't believe actually became one of his closest and most influential disciples in the early church. His mother believed and understood she had some way to fathom what God had given her in being the blessing, the grace of being the one who would bear the Son of God and bring God's own Son into the world. But right here, right now, in this incredibly tight-knit society, he says, let me tell you who my real family is. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and hears what counts. It's not hearing, it's doing, always. And it's not an isolated thing. In Luke chapter 11, look at this. It's going to be right on your screen. And we'll just look at this screen first because I want you to see Jesus' response. He's teaching on another occasion and a woman pronounces a blessing for Mary. She calls out to Jesus in the middle of his teaching. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. What do you think? Is that a good blessing? It's very kind. Frankly, it's understandable. God bless the woman who brought you into the world. God bless the woman who was given the favor of nursing you. You would expect Jesus to say amen, right? Look what he says. Read it with me. But he said... Blessed, rather, are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Wow. He's not rude to his mother. He loved her. From the cross, he spoke to John to care for her. But he doesn't want, in that culture or this, he doesn't want you to miss something extraordinarily important about the family of God. In the family of God, no one belongs until they obey. What this whole thing has been about is listening to Jesus and obeying Him. Jesus has been saying, you are the light of the world. No other help and no other plan is coming. 
I've placed you in a dark world to save you because I love you, and I keep you in the dark world for the same reason, so that the light I've given you will shine on to others, but what matters is not listening and walking away. And this is the great danger of the way many people go to church. We go to church, myself included, and even the preacher is capable of saying, well, that was a nice day. Now, from Monday to Saturday, I live my life. And on Sunday, I hear from God and have a nice experience, and nothing really changes. Jesus says, no, you've been saved to shine. You were brought out of darkness. You were given the light so that you can show the light. This matters so much to Jesus. Look at John 6, 29. It's going to be on your screen. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Religion always tries to answer the question, what is it that God wants? What is the work of God? Jesus says it's simple. It's believing in me. The work of God is believing in him whom he, God, has sent. So what am I trying to tell you? This, church, simply, the world is getting darker, but we were saved to shine. Those little worlds that maybe only you know that you wrote down on your piece of paper, vitally important. It may be that there are no other disciples of Jesus in those worlds. It may be that they are present, but they're hiding their light. And like I did in high school, are of no use to God or anyone else because for fear, for social pressure, they will not name Jesus. They will not step up. They will not own him and give people the light of the gospel. That was my story in high school. I knew the light, I loved the light, but in fear, because of social pressure, I did something that Jesus told me not to do. I hid the light. Don't do it. The world's getting darker, in large part because those of us who have the light refuse to shine. Don't do it. You were saved to shine. Let's pray together. Could I ask you Christians to go to Jesus right now and ask Him to help you obey Him. You've identified some worlds where He wants you to shine. Could I ask you to talk to Him about those worlds beginning in your home, please? Your parents, your kids, your siblings. How's the light of Jesus shining on them through you? And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, if you're one of those investigators, one of those seekers, my invitation to you is that you will do what Brian did, what another person did last week as well, that you would say, Jesus, I understand. I've sinned. I have come short. I've broken the rules. My conscience tells me so. I feel the guilt. I feel the shame. But I want you to save me. That's why he came. That's why the light started shining in the dark worlds, to save people. He can save you. I can't. This church can't. All this church can do is point you to Jesus, and that's what I'm trying my best to do right now, to point you to Jesus, the Savior of the world, who can be your Savior as well. That you would turn to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I understand. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. Please forgive me. Forgive my sins. Give me a new life. Give me a home in heaven. I'm asking for your death to cover my life, your resurrection to give me life. Amen.
Father, as we conclude our service and we sing a final song of worship and we give these offerings, Lord, every, you believe, put it in our heart that every dime that comes in above budget for the rest of the year will be spent beyond these walls. And we've already received a very wonderful, generous gift, Lord, for our missionaries. Some's already gone to, to help people in our society that have been terribly abused. I pray that that financial support would send more and more trained people into that fight to rescue these victims. You told us to give. It's our joy to give. You love cheerful givers. Lord, bless those of us who have already been blessed and given an ability to give to understand that we have been blessed to be a blessing that we are to be generous with what you've given. For those, Lord, who are really, really in a dire situation and and actually have nothing to give, I pray that you would bless and prosper them and provide for them so that they would experience your goodness through that and then, Lord, be able in generosity to give as they would like today. We give this in the name of Jesus so that the light may shine in this dark world. Amen.